to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. What you're about to hear is a discussion on anti-Semitism between historian Deborah Lipstadt, sociologist Frank Faraday, and director of the Academy of Ideas, Claire Fox, in the chair. I'd like to welcome you to this session interrogating anti-Semitism. I'm Claire Fox, I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas. This is a very important topic. We're here to discuss the oldest hatred, and partly, I suppose, what we want to look at in the limited time that we've got is whether the expressions of anti-Semitism today uh, that have been much discussed, particularly here in the UK, reflect the same prejudices as those faced by Jews in the Middle Ages or what happened in relation to the Holocaust... Or is there a different kind of anti-Semitism we're looking at today? So we've got a number of questions that we want to uh, uh, talk about. It's certainly the case that anti-Semitism is very much a feature of our society. I recently spoke in in Brussels about the terrible murder in Germany, the anti-Semitic murder that happened only recently. But, you know, as you kind of document these things, you know, you see the tombstones in... Uh, the only functioning Jewish cemetery in Bordeaux in France smashed to pieces, the commissioner for anti-Semitism in Germany warning the Jewish community, I cannot advise Jews to wear the kippah everywhere all the time in Germany. Anybody who's on a British university will know this issue is a tense one, particularly for Jewish students. And I hardly need remind people that here in the UK, the Equality and Human Rights Commission has uh, launched a formal investigation uh, into allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and now that we are having an election, it's a big issue. Now, some people say that this is overstated. How can you compare these things with the Holocaust? There's all sorts of issues about what is and what isn't anti-Semitism. It's not a straightforward topic. And I have to say that this session was inspired... (coughs) Uh, very much by this book, Deborah Lipstadt's Anti-Semitism Here and Now. This book is incredibly important, must read, I have to say. What I thought was funny was, every time I was reading it, I'd read a section and I'd think, ah, but she's forgotten about this particular challenge. And then I'd turn over and they'd say, ah, <laughs> you think I've forgotten this challenge, but I haven't. Anyway, so practically everything I've ever thought about wanting to ask about anti-Semitism, was answered in this book. So I highly recommend it. And it's by Deborah Lipstadt. And we are absolutely honoured, therefore, that you're with us uh, as you've inspired the session. Deborah Lipstadt is a Dorot Professor of Holocaust Studies at Emory uh, University, come all the way from the US, although via Israel, to be with us. She's also the author of History um, on Trial, My Day in Court with a Holocaust Denier, that was then re-released as Denial, which then became a big film, uh, a David Hare film with Rachel Weisz and, and, and Tom Wilkinson. But obviously it's not that it's kind of like she wrote a book and there was a film. This was based on real life, because as people will know, Deborah actually was sued for libel in 1996 by David Irving for calling him a Holocaust denier, which he denied. She won. He is indeed a Holocaust denier. Um, we're also uh, joined by Frank Faraday, who's a regular contributor to the 
Festival, the Battle of Ideas. He's a sociologist and social commentator, author of many books, including How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and Populism and the European Culture Wars, and is probably one of the most influential writers on the rise of anti-Semitism in the UK at the moment, and looking at that and discussing it interestingly. Um, and so we thought getting them to both talk to each other would be helpful. So just one thing to explain before I start, and I'm just going to ask questions. In terms of the format, they're not doing speeches. I'm going to ask a number of questions. It's their in views that we're interested in. We'll do that for half of the time, and then I'll come out to you and you can make contributions or ask questions in the typical battle of ideas fashion. We'll take four or five and so on. But one of the things that, that Deborah does in the book is it's based on a series of letters to her one of the, uh, the people who writes the letters is Abigail, a whip-smart Jewish student who, in a way, confronts a lot of these dilemmas all the time as a student, as somebody who's studying. She comes across a lot of the issues where she says, is this anti-Semitism, is it not? Am I being too sensitive? Am I not being sensitive enough? Was I a coward not to intervene and so on? And also letters from Joe, who's a, a non-Jewish colleague who teaches at the university's law school, very committed anti-racist and committed to to uh, social justice, but also is exploring the different ways that this plays out in terms of politics, campus politics, and so on. So the kind of questions I'm just going to ask are just a few, because as I said, they're all there, uh, uh, that get asked in this book. So I actually wanted to ask you about how we describe or characterise anti-Semitism, whether it's coming from the left or the right. Because obviously, because of Nazi Germany... And when you think of anti-Semitic far-right groups, you know, far-right groups, you think anti-Semitic. And yet here we are in the UK with the Labour Party and there's something going on. So is some anti-Semitism left or right or is it even useful to discuss it that way? I, I think that it's both. <coughs> it's left and it's right. <coughs> on the left, you have examples such as uh, the Labour Party. In my country, you have other examples. Uh, Representative Ilan Omar... Talib and, a couple, and many others on the left. You see it on the campus. Um, but you also have it on the right. And uh, I think to ignore that is to uh, wear a blinder. Uh, certainly all the violent attacks, Pittsburgh, 11 people dead just a year ago, Poway, San Diego, um, Hala in, on Yom Kippur that you mentioned in your introduction, all those and many others that were aborted, that were stopped, uh, and it, not uh, just attacks on Jews, the attack in El Paso at the Walmart a, a, a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, um, that's all coming from the right. So what my point is, and, and Claire, as you know, I argue this in the book, that to get into a what I call a food fight, you know, which is worse, um, it's first of all to, is to expend your energies, I think, on a, a useless uh, task. And what, what I often see happening in the Jewish community, but outside the Jewish community as well, is people on the right are very adept at seeing anti-Semitism on the left, where it is, seeing it correctly and describing it correctly. And people on the left, who never saw anti-Semitism before, see it very clearly on the right. And I call that weaponizing anti-Semitism. Um, the point is, you, if you only see it on the other side of the political transom from where you reside, 
then you're using it as a political weapon even if you don't think you are. Um, it's on both sides, it presents differently. Sort of bottom line, and I'll stop with this, is that on the left right now, it's generally more structural, as you see in the Labor Party. And that's dangerous, because that can change things dramatically. On the right, it tends to more, be more violent and be generally confined to people on the further fringes. But both are dangerous. And then, of course, on top of right and left, you get Islamist extremists, um, as you've had main, most of the European tragedies have been that. And to a certain degree, and I want to be very careful here because I don't want to engage in the same wrong that I'm writing about and attacking in terms of a prejudicial sentiment, but you also find it in segments of mainstream Muslim communities, people who would never do anything violent, never plan on doing it, never intend to do it, but where it's just ingrained, the hostility towards Jews is ingrained. Yeah, I, I think it depends where you're sitting when this debate happens. I mean, I was recently involved in a debate that largely was made up of right-thinking left people, and we were there was a condemnation of the Yom Kippur murder. But, of course, it was, we've got to condemn the rise of right-wing anti-Semitism in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I made a contribution that said we should condemn right-wing or left-wing anti-Semitism right. in Europe. And people were outraged that I said this. And what I'm saying, I, I agree with you, it's one-sided. But anyway, Frank, how do you kind of take this on? And maybe we should start thinking, what's the difference between them? Because there is a difference. Well, I, I think that uh, there is a, an interesting phenomenon. So every time there is an anti-Semitic attack, people on the right kind of hope that it was left-wing terrorists who did that. Mm -hmm. And people on the left hope that it was right-wing terrorists that did that, because then that kind of strengthens their point. And the way that I understand the dynamic is that what you have is an is a interrelationship that has developed historically whereby what I call old-school anti-Semitism, which was principally a right-wing accomplishment, tended to be fairly under the surface in the post-Second World War period, and very rarely, except on the margins, you know, had the bravery, the fortitude to express itself. But it was there, a kind of under the surface. And I think what happened was that uh, uh, with the shift in attitudes on the part of the left, and with the incoming uh, of large numbers of Muslim immigrants who were anti-Jewish anti and didn't distinguish between Israel and Judaism all that much, that gave permission to the right-wing, old-school anti-Semites to be a bit more vociferous than they were beforehand, which then in turn created a, a kind of condition where you had a, a kind of left-wing uh, anti-Semitism developing, which in a sense, uh, is, I call that the anti-Semitism of bad faith, in the sense that they don't really express their real views as forcefully as, as they should. They do amongst themselves. But basically, the left-wing anti-Semitism is, is one that, on the one hand, says we're not like these people, like these Nazis with wearing brown shirts and everything else. We're way above them. We, have, you know, we occupy the moral high ground. But at the same time, you know, there's something really weird about Jews. They are a little bit cliquey. You know, they are uh, you know, uh, they're on the media. To give you an example, at my university, we had a situation where in one of the sociology seminars, people started making anti-Semitic comments about how the Jews run the media. They controlled all the newspapers. And all the lecturers that were there just couldn't handle it. They basically kept quiet about it. You know, sort of, and they came to me afterwards, and, I, and they said, look, you know, what do we do? I said, why, didn't, why are we such a schmuck? Why didn't you, you know, <laughs> you know, sort of argue with them or whatever? 
And they, what they basically said, well, we couldn't do it because there are a lot of other people on campus who are a bit wary of this whole situation and who maybe share those kinds of views. And they are people who are on, the, are on the academic left, you might call them. So I think you've got to see that as being a, a dynamic relationship. And at the moment, I'm much more concerned about what Deborah calls the structured anti-Semitism than about what's happening in the margins for the very simple reason that the structured anti-Semitism has got far greater cultural validation and affirmation, has got greater cultural authority than these bunch of fairly marginal, you know, sort of... Uh, Except those writing. fairly marginal people kill... I've been in they Pittsburgh do. twice yeah, the they, past they ki- year. So. Yeah, I mean, they kill people and they do violent things. But in terms of the long-term development of anti-Semitism, in terms of the contributions, I see that as being much more to do with the mainstream acceptability, that being a little bit anti-Semitic in the way that it's evolved is, is, is okay. Uh, I think that, to me, is a much more worrying thing. I, I think yeah, the challenge I would issue <coughs> is not to get, we, and I don't want to get this into which is worse, because that's, a, that's again, it's a useless task. Anybody in this audience, who's th- wherever part, place you see yourself on the political spectrum, is to pay attention to anti-Semitism that comes from people who might share your other political views. Because with those people, you have much more street cred, as the students would say, you know, street credibility, because you're, you're, you can't be dismissed as just from the other side. So I think that that's the challenge, not to get into which is worse. They're different. One is violent, one is structural, and has very long-term implications. But if you want to address it, then you, you do it from the side you're on. But I want to add another thing here, because we can get too much right and left that the truth of the matter is that the anti-Semitism, whether it's coming from the right or the left, is the same. It's the same stereotypes, it's the same memes, it's the same uh, charges, and usually it's, it's three or four things, three basic things. Something to do with money, something to do with intellect, but not intellect as we call it, smarts, but cunning, power, punching above your weight in power. The Jews control the media. No one would ever say the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants control you know, all the major law firms or whatever it might be, or the white shoe law firms, as they're called in the States. But it becomes the Jews. The, the, and, and so it, it goes from the individual to the group. And so if you look for, uh, and it, irrespective of whether it's coming from the right or the left, you hear the same things. Uh, money, power, intellect used uh, nefariously. But then there are differences, too. For, the, for those on the far right, the, the killer in Pittsburgh and the killer in San Diego uh, were both saying the same thing as what in, the, in the Pittsburgh one as he was shooting and the killer in the so-called manifesto. And even though I'm again, I don't like manifestos in general, his gibberish it doesn't deserve to be, didn't have a, 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 comp, uh, a coherent intellectual idea, the gibberish he left afterwards. Both talked about Jews as not white. The guy in in Pittsburgh, as the police, as the SWAT team was chasing him through the building and trying to corner him, bring him down, was yelling, um, you're not, to the people he was killing, you're not going to destroy the white race. To him, Jews are not white. They are mud people, but they are not white. And the, the... 
theory that motivates that that right that far right winger that extremist whether it's San Diego whether it's Pittsburgh is that there is an influx of brown and black people into Europe and in, in, in the United States coming from the south but these brown and black people says the the far right wing extremists are not smart enough to do this on their own this is being orchestrated controlled yeah. by Jews so you just wanted to ask one thing because the converse of that is also that ironically, one of the ways that the left gets into a mess on this is, they say, is because they say the other way around, which is they say, we fight racism everywhere, but actually, even though we acknowledge there might be some anti-Jewish prejudice, they are, they are white privileged people. Mm -hmm. Well, they say they are white privileged right. people. But anyway, so and I'll just kind power. of make that point. But anyway, anything you wanted to kind of re respond to? Well, I, I mean, I, it, it is the case that, uh, you know, so in the far right, the old classical uh, conspiracy theories and the manipulative Jew, you know, sort of still kind of exists. I mean, I always think back of the, of the Nazi propaganda where you have you had the classical cartoon where you have two Jews, the two brother cones, and one of them is organizing the trade union movement against capitalism while the other one is a capitalist. And that kind of sense of they're getting their hands at, at, at both of those levels, that's still there. But I think in many of that's the least interesting because that's, that's really what has been the basic bread and butter of anti-Semitism since you know, the beginning of anti-Semitism. What I find very interesting is the way that identity politics has mutated into a, into a, a kind of political expression where <coughs> Jews you know, are really seen as like not just white, but they're hyper-white. They're kind of more white than white, and they have therefore special kind of privileges. So, for example, my partner, she's on a on a board uh, of, of, a, of a women's reproductive charity or in foundation in the United States, and she goes to America quite a lot. And they were basically talking about diversity and you know, who are they, they going to employ and everything else. And she just happened to mention innocently, well, how come that nobody mentions Jews in, in relation to any of this stuff? And she says, well, that's because Jews are white. are white. They're not minorities. They're not particularly oppressed. They're whatever. And this discussion then ensues where, you know, being Jewish, you almost imagine that not only are Jews white, but they are like the ruling elites of the United States. And that kind of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, poor man's version of anti-capitalism kind of has kicked in in a, in a certain kind of a way. So, so. Uh, one of the big questions, obviously, that comes up all the time and that's very difficult to untangle is the Israel question. So, a lot of people will contend that... Well, it, it takes a number of forms, but crudely, um, either that legitimate criticism of Israel is now being silenced because it's called anti-Semitic, that's a kind of fairly regular one, that, you know, there's nothing wrong with things like the BDS movement, the, the, the boycotting Israel movement, because these are politically justified things, you know, and Israel, uh, uh, Israel in relation to Palestine and some of its human rights abuses, so you've got that side of it. You've also got a kind of uh, sort of tension there, which is, is that there is an obsession with Israel as a country. Anyway, so, uh, but anyway, how do you know? I mean, this is particularly an issue in, on the left, but it's also the case that I have experienced, even though I am the person who argues that, you know, so much criticism of Israel is 
it moves into anti-Semitism. I've also been accused of anti-Semitism for criticising Israel. So I, I, I'm, I'm right. more than... No, I know, but I'm more than aware of the fact that it can be used to shut you down as well. So I, I, this is kind of an interesting yeah, area. I think that the idea that if you criticise Israel, you're anti-Semitic is really... I know of very few, even people who are exceptionally pro-Israel or, you know, supportive of Israel, and very few sane people who make that argument. You go to the Knesset. Now, they're yelling at each other. Hebrew has to be very good because it's very quick. But you'll hear criticism of Israeli policies. Read the Israeli press. You read criticism of Israeli policies. Criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism, and it almost it belabors the point to, you know, uh, uh, to, to say that, but I, it needs to be said, I guess. My question comes up is when there is a... Uh, unidimensional focus on Israel. And that doesn't mean that in order to be able to criticize problems in Israel, you have to criticize problems in every other human rights uh, problem in the world. I mean, we all pick our issues. But when there is this myopia of only focus on Israel, and this is the only human rights problem, and this is the only human rights problem that makes it worthy to say that the uh, so-called uh, abuser state should be dismantled. And when that myopia says all the wrongs are on one side, and, and the other side is just a passive um, uh, purveyor of good and, and, and simply a victim and has no role in it. I think there are problems on both sides. You've got to ask, why the myopia? You know, I was recently someplace, the person didn't know who I was, but they was talking about BDS, and the person said to me, well, Israel was founded in sin, and therefore it doesn't have a right to exist. So I naively said, oh, and what do you mean by that? And she says, well, because they kicked the Palestinian Arabs out. I said, well, that's historically, that's not exactly correct. Um, there were places where Palestinian villages and towns where certain groups of, Israel, of Jewish fighters did push the Palestinians out. But there were also many Palestinian Arabs who left uh, then Palestine as the war began, the 48 war began, because the Arab radio coming from Jordan, coming from Egypt, said leave, uh, and, and you'll leave, and you'll come back in two weeks, and you'll get the Jews' homes and orchards and businesses. Just get out of the way so we can demolish them. Um, and he said, but still, they, they, kicked out other, they kicked out some, so there's a founding sin. So I said, well, let's think about other countries which have sins in their founding history. And let's start, this was in, in New York, in, in the States, so I said, let's start with the United States of America and slavery and our treatment of the Native Americans. Or let's talk about Australia and the treatment of the Aborigines, New Zealand, the treatment of Maoris. In other words, I'm not saying let's talk about China, Myanmar, but country, and this country and its colonial empires. Um, and I'm not saying that because there are wrongs in all these places that makes it right. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying, again, this myopic kind of um, focus, you just have to ask, why the myopia? Why the singular focus? And that brings me back to wondering whether it's anti-Semitism. Well, I think things have changed. Uh, I, I always remember in the late 60s when I came of age, politically and intellectually, that I would have a lot of Arab friends from Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and uh, we would talk about Israel. And the way we would talk about Israel would be pretty much in the same terms that we would talk about other countries in the Middle East. You know, it, it had its problems, its good bits, its bad bits. And there was a kind of, you know, on the one hand, a critical edge to our discussions because, you know, Israelis are by no means angels. You know, they're like 
human beings like anywhere else. And uh, so there was a kind of uh, understanding that Israel had a legitimate role within the world. And it, what would happen occasionally is that people's uh, dislike of Zionism, which I think you know, you're entitled to dislike Zionism, would occasionally you know, sort, of, uh, uh, sort of move into a, a slightly anti-Semitic direction. Or it might seem to be anti-Semitic. But, but I always gave them a free pass you know, because I knew that by and large they were interested in, you know, they had a genuine you know, struggle with making sense of what Israel was all about. So insofar as the question of anti-Semitism emerged, it came as a, as a secondary factor. I think what has changed is, is that today what I find when I debate and I discuss with people is that uh, the logical relationship has altered. So many, many people dislike Israel not because they love Palestinians or they have very strong views about the Middle East. They dislike Israel because they don't like Jews. And that's the difference. So it's the anti-Semitism you know, that kind of proceeds and leads to uh, this kind of uh, worldview where Israel is the only country in the world that is, you know, is a kind of a class of its own. It, it commits horrible things that no other country commits. And I think that kind of exaggerated rhetoric uh, and the cultural uh, dynamic around it, it is inspired by, an, by, by, by an anti-Semitism and even the BDS movement. You know, the BDS movement presents itself as, as this, we care about social justice, we care about equality. I, I, when you actually scratch the surface and you talk to some of these BDS guys, you know, they really don't like Jews. So for example, when I wrote an article on BDS, I got four emails from members of BDS, and these are left-wing activists who are in BDS to say, look, Frank, I disagree with you about a whole lot of things, but the one thing that I, where I share your worries is very often when we have our BDS meetings, the criticism of Israel almost, you know, almost imperceptibly turns into uh, anti-Semitic hysteria within the meetings themselves. And I feel very uncomfortable when people no longer talk about Israel, just talk about Jews as being the problem. And I think that kind of sensibility is a relatively new development that has changed the terms of the way we yeah, discussed this. There's a, I agree with you 100%, and I think there's another element to add to it. I was just listening today to, uh, what is it, Ethical May, some BBC show with, where someone on it was saying, well, I'm just, I'm, I don't believe in states that are based on religion, therefore I'm against Israel because it's uh, based on Judaism. Now, the person was not against the Church of England or the, I think it's 22 different countries yeah. which are Muslim countries, those were okay. Or 18 European ones. Right, <laughs> right. So it's just, again, then you have to ask. If the only example he can give, the only focus, and is just, then you have to ask, where's this myopia? What is happening here? There's something out of whack. That's... that's yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, a, a, a sensitive subject, and actually I, I know that you kind of try and deal with this as well in terms of sensitive, is the issue of the way that many anti-racist and social justice warriors, as it were here, deal with issues around Islam. And of course this is difficult because we know that some people are discriminated against, beaten up and treated like dirt because they're Muslims, right? Or murdered in a mosque. Or what have you. Yeah, so it's not, not to be glib about this or to kind of... But there is this very peculiar thing. It's just it's the exceptionalism that's afforded to Israel is kind of like treated like the pariah state even though actually there's lots of countries that are based on religion, like you said, but they can't see it. But there's a, suddenly there's a different thing, which is when I, I, I 
wrote about this once, but, you know, when I was in a sixth form in a school and some of the young people there were argu- argued that the Twin Towers disaster, you know, was a conspiracy, a Jewish... Co- they said, I mean, they were 16, 17, they said it's a Jewish conspiracy. They were young Asian kids, right? They said it's a Jewish conspiracy. And anyway, and I had an argument and because I, I, I said, no, it's not, and that's anti-Semitic. Anyway, mm-hmm. this all caused a bit of a kerfuffle. And this kind of went on. And when I talked to the teachers, they said, oh, it's very brave of you to say that. And I, it wasn't that brave, was it? Because they were talking rubbish on their sixth form, and they're sixth formers. But in a way, it was, because guess what? They then started to accuse me of Islamophobia because I didn't, you know, and you so I got into trouble right. because yeah. I didn't, because I wouldn't accept that their their version of the truth. They also went on to say that the Charlie Hebdo um, massacre was justified because, well, what can you expect? We don't like violence, but what can you say? These are children, right? So I'm, you know, kids. They shouldn't be let off the hook, by the way, and I didn't. The reason I'm mentioning that is because you can be accused of racism in this country at the drop of a hat over anything, saying one word wrong. When I tell that story to people, they'll say, well, Claire, you've got, you know, you're, you know you've got to be very careful about, you know, Islamophobia. And I'm saying the stories about anti-Semitism is not about Islamophobia. But they can see that and it's can't see that. of low expectations. But, but we've seen that on the left here, though, haven't we? We've seen that, and that was what I was going to say. Was that's a big thing here, is the left have turned a blind eye to explicit anti-Semitism on demonstrations, for example, anti-war demonstrations, by young Muslims, and they don't say anything. Whereas, so, any comments? Can okay, I just say one thing which, I mean, bothers me more than anti, the, a genuine, you know, sort of enthusiastic, enthusiastic anti-Semite. Uh, and that's a person who accommodates to it. So, for example, in the teaching profession in, in, in Britain, you get all these stories, because you know, they're all meant to be teaching the Holocaust. I, I've never been a big fan of Holocaust teaching. I think it's often done in a, in a bad way, you know, sort of. Yeah. Um, all of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's got to be done in a, in a right kind of context, right, exactly. you know, not, not the way it's often done. But in many schools, they've stopped teaching uh, the Holocaust. And the reason why they stopped teaching the Holocaust is because they said there's a lot of Muslim kids in the class, and they would have offend them, you know, sort of. And they don't ask the question, well, why would the teaching of the Holocaust offend anybody? I mean, what, you know, you know, what is it about the Holocaust that you know, other people would find offensive? And then when you talk to them a little bit more, you realize that what they're doing is, and they're not even aware of it sometimes, is they're basically accommodating to the, to the growth of the sensibility. So rather than checking it or containing it as, in, in a way that a teacher should, they basically become part of the problem. And I think that kind of accommodation <coughs> to anti-Semitism... I worry about much more because these are often people who, in, in their hearts of hearts, know that they're doing the wrong thing. They know that they shouldn't be doing it, but nevertheless, they're, they're kind of playing that kind of role. And, and we know from history that you know, one morning you accommodate, the next morning you become a bit more Probably, active right. and, and become part of the problem. No, I think that's exactly true. You know, to go back to the Twin Towers, the accusation that the Jews, you know, the, 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 the story went out within, <laughs> it started, I think, in El Al-Haram in, in a Syrian newspaper. I believe it was a Syrian newspaper, not Al-Haram. Um, that uh, 3,000 Jews were told to stay home from the Twin Towers 
um, on the morning of the Twin Towers and therefore weren't there. Now that started because on the day of the tin tower, Twin Towers, lots of um, foreign consul, gen, consulates in uh, New York said they were looking for their own nationals who might be near the Twin Towers just to keep track of their citizens. And the Israeli consul, consulate in New York said, we know there are 3,000 Israelis here on tourists or visas, and we're trying to track them. So that was said, you know, three th Israelis became Jews, and then the story was told, and it was, it was not just fringe, this becomes a, a book on this topic, making this argument, was a bestseller in France, that 3,000 Jews were called the night before and told to stay home. Now, first of all, that means, think about it, that the people making that accusation says there is some directory, and somebody has some directory, <laughs> based on, and a reverse directory, not just where you live, but where you work, so that they know exactly, there's a Jewish, uh, you know, the elders of Zion and sitting in some place in New York have a directory where every, call every Jew who works in the Twin Towers, or call every Jew who lives in Brooklyn to whatever, stay out of this, so they know where you work, and they called them the night before. Now, the thing that really makes it absurd is I can't imagine 3,000 Jews knowing something and not telling, you know, <laughs> 200,000 others. I'm, I'm not supposed to tell you, but let me tell you, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a. it's absurd. It makes no sense. But this is a story that has gained traction. So much so, here's the really sad part, it gained so much traction that somebody did an analysis of the people, the funerals and memorial services, because in certain cases there weren't bodies that were recovered that could be buried, of people in New York and using the names or if there was a rabbi officiating or maybe a rabbi and a priest officiating or the family members had, it's hard to tell with names but they allowed for that they came up with that the number of Jewish victims in the Twin Towers is exactly proportional to the number of Jews living in the major New York metropolitan area. But think about it. Someone sat down to do this work to try to answer this absurd accusation. Yes, this absurd accusation has traction. So anti-Semitism is stupid. If it didn't cause so much damage... It would just, it, you know, Jews are capitalists, Jews are communists, Jews are pushy, they want to be in clubs that don't want them, they're clannish. Last time I checked, you couldn't be a capitalist and a communist, pushy and clannish at the same time. But that's true too, you know, so it, but it gains this traction, it is the oldest hatred. Um, the, the final thing before I go out to the audience is actually on peculiar ways that anti-Semitism arise, particularly in relation to, or anti-Semitism or so, so, some difficulties, particularly in relation to rewriting history. And I wanted to kind of think about that, particularly in relation to Eastern Europe, as it happens, because it's kind of a bit of a feature. And it's something that I think you might disagree on, so I thought I'd raise it. Because there's, on the one hand, there's, a kind of, uh, there's an argument that in Eastern Europe, a lot of the right-wing populist parties are anti-Semitic. But at the very least, there is an argument that in the attempts at rewriting history, particularly in Poland and particularly in Hungary, there's an attempt at uh, downplaying the role historically of the, the regimes at the time, or people at the time, in pogroms and anti-Semitic anti atrocities and in the Holocaust, effectively. And there certainly is a lot of rewriting history going on. But it's also the case, conversely, just on the rewriting history issue, that I was involved in another debate in Europe, actually in Brussels, in which they were doing a big commemoration of the 
uh, that we needed to have days of commemoration every year for the Second World War. Very important that we did that. We couldn't forget. And it, there was pages and pages and pages of emotion. And somebody had to point out that they'd forgotten to mention the Jewish Holocaust. And the reason they'd forgotten to mention the Jews was because they were so inclusively trying to mention everyone else. You know, everyone had a genocide and a Holocaust. So it was never forget... Uh, you know, let's remember the LGBTQ community uh, were also, you know, the, the Roma and so on and so forth. There was a like, long list and we're going to have memories everywhere. But that actually, the, it ended up that the Jewish Holocaust was a minor footnote in this and barely got mentioned. Wasn't there an ECU, uh, UCU, I'm sorry, uh, resolution recently which talked about January 27th as a day of commemoration of Roma and Sinti, yeah. others than gypsies, uh, LGBTQ, non-Jewish Poles, non- the, the, and Jews weren't on the list. Non-Jews weren't. I mean, they made it a point. We remember the non-Jews, but the Jews weren't. Yeah. Well, Ju- Jewish pets were all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm raising that because history and the whole kind of Eastern Europe and commemoration yeah. stuff, I think it's just interesting. Any reflections? Yeah. You might disagree with Deborah yeah. on the I'll Hungary question. I'll let you start question. on that one. Um, 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 because you would say that's demonising the Hungarians and you would say stop being defended. They deserve yeah. it. Yeah. Well, ah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, the way that I look at it is that obviously... There, you, know, you have to remember that the East Europeans have been told to, to kind of come to terms with their past. And I think a lot of East Europeans are very resentful of that on the ground that they don't actually think that Western Europe has come to terms with its past by any means. Uh, for Germany, things that it's occupying the moral high ground in terms of having come to terms with their past. I would rather be a Jewish person in Budapest wearing a kippah than I would be in Berlin any day. Uh, you know, uh, Jewish restaurants... Jewish restaurants in Budapest don't have security guards. In front. They don't have to have them there. You know, you have Jewish um, film festivals and cultural festivals like last month in Budapest. Not a single poster was defaced or had, you know, swastika on it. In in Berlin or in Bradford or in Malmo or in Paris, you'd find that they would be full of anti-Semitic kind of comments. So we need to have a sense of proportion. And I think that there is a sense in which people can see anti-Semitism in its Polish and Hungarian and. and Poland and Hungary are very different anyways in that kind of variety. Uh, Whereas, in fact, you know, I actually think that that there's a kind of exaggerated uh, reaction where where East Europe is held to a standard that is not at all like the standard that anywhere else is held to, and where you see problems in a way that you forgive those problems elsewhere. Now, there is a problem, and I think the problem is is that, you know, these societies are are confronted with, with a past that is very confused, has got some very horrible uh, episodes kind of contained within it. And there is, you know, as you would expect, a, a major industry that is trying to rewrite its history. And, uh, and very often, you know, these are em- embarrassing episodes. For example, the first anti-Jewish law that was passed in the interwar period was in Hungary, in the, uh, you know, sort of, uh, had to do with u- university students keep having a quota of, uh, of places reserved for non-Jews and limiting the number of Jews that could go to university. So there are all these laws that kind of precede the German Nazi kind of experience. And I know that a lot of Hungarians are trying to minimize the, uh, you know, the, the role of these uh, events in their particular history. And they're trying to sort of uh, look at the past from the best possible light. You know? And I think that's got problems contained with it. I don't think it's... Uh, qualitatively different than what's going on everywhere else in Europe in terms of the rewriting of history. And if you're going to criticize Hungary, then we should hold them to the same account as anywhere else. 
I also think, and this is why I think Deborah would totally disagree with me on this. Getting ready. Is the Soros <laughs> thing. I think that uh, Soros is disliked in Hungary, not because he's Jewish. I think the only you know, unobjectionable thing about George Soros is that he's Jewish. I think everything else about him, his interventionist, you know, sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, attitude, this imperialist attitude of telling Hungary the values that it should live by, uh, which has, you know, and, and financing institutions to put a counterpoint and, and, and not taking responsibility for that. You know, you can, you can agree or disagree, but a lot of Hungarians resent it and they kind of experience that as a kind of semi-colonial intrusion on their society. And I think that the propaganda against Soros you know, may well have all kinds of malevolent intentions. He may have been used because he was an easy target to get it at, at the election campaigns, but I think that Soros really kind of asked for that. And just because he had pictures all over Hungary did not mean that you know, people, oh, yeah, it's a, it, this, is a, this is a Jewish person, therefore I should be anti-Semitic. Yeah, they, they, we really are going to disagree. Yeah. I, think, um, I think there was other I, factors I in there. I think that, um, first of all, uh, there's a lot to criticize about Germany. I'm the last one to come to the defense of Germany in this sense, and it took Germany a long time to, to really come to terms. And, uh, you know, Adenauer's government was riddled with, with uh, Nazis. I wrote a book about the Eichmann trial. The <coughs> German embassy in Argentina had the same people in office in Vi- working there in Weimar in the Nazi period and the Adenauer period, et cetera. Um, but, first of all, the rewriting of history and in both Hungary and Poland, you have something that you don't have in Germany. In Austria, it's taken the Austrians a long time to recognize they were not Hitler's first victims, but they were actually great allies and part of the um, of the genocide. But certainly, um, in in Poland and in Hungary, you've seen a rewriting of history. In Hungary, and I've, I've been there quite a few times, not as often as you go, but, but certainly, and visited the museums and, and been in discussions with people, there's an uh, attempt to portray Hungary, and in that horrible monument down, you know, in the, in the city center, um, as one of the victims of the Germans. Now, when, the Ger- when Adolf Eichmann arrived in Hungary, in Budapest, about the third week in March of 1944, he arrived with fewer than 300 SS men and SS officers. And in the space of approximately seven weeks, from the beginning of May to the beginning of July, they organized, there was organized, I'm using the passive voice here for a reason, um, a deportation of close to half a million Jews. Now, you don't do that with 300 SS officers. You do that with the active assistance of Hungarian militia, Hungarian police, Hungarian railroads, Hungarian citizens, Hungarian officials, that the Hungarians played a direct role in this. The Hungarian government under Admiral Horthy, which first fought and, and didn't agree to the deportation of the Jews in 43, but in 44 was part of it. Now, to, to ignore that fact is to rewrite histories. Going to Poland, you have the same thing with the Polish law in the uh, making it a crime and now making it a civil offense to say that Poles collaborated, the Polish nation, okay, the Polish nation didn't, but the Polish people collaborated. Yes, there were 60, there's 6,700 
Poles in, in Yad Vashem who were commemorated as uh, righteous Gentiles, but there were many, many Poles, we know this from the memoirs, we know this from the documentation, who turned Jews over, who were, were part of this, you know, not, they weren't, they weren't collaborators like the hung Hungarians, but they certainly were, were, were part in, 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 in helping the Germans find Jews and, and kill them. Um, so it's, it's what I call softcore denial. It's not denial of the facts, but it's rewriting who did it. And, and I think that that's part of this, this shift that we're seeing certainly in Poland and Hungary and uh, Lithuania and some other places as well. I do appreciate that Frank wants to come back, but he can't. <laughs> um, but you are doing a session on Hungary tomorrow, aren't you? I did one this morning. Oh, he's so. done it. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to use some of the session you're speaking at to do this. Anyway, right, OK. I uh, yeah, thank you. I just want to preface what I'm going to say with saying that traditionally my family were Labour supporters and uh, very vocal in uh, supporting the NHS. Um, so that's kind of, for me, why the Labour anti-Semitism hurts more. I think in terms of right-wing anti-Semitism, it's kind of obvious, um, and you know what you're dealing with, is that someone's going to wear a Nazi uniform or come after you with a weapon or whatever, and that's kind of dealable with. And I made the mistake recently of getting involved in a kind of Facebook spat with a friend of a friend, which I regret, um, who about Labour anti-Semitism. And I think the problem with it is, is that it's a kind of self-contained belief system. So by raising the criticism, I immediately become accused of being right-wing, part of the establishment, uh, supporting uh, all kinds of things that I don't support. Uh, and obviously there were all kinds of other things brought into the argument. And I just wonder how you deal with that self-contained circle, well, self-contained belief system or circle of thought or whatever you want to call it, which says anyone that raises this criticism is smearing. And uh, therefore, by raising it, you are now part of that group that is responsible for the smear, which I guess is kind of a cipher in saying, well, you're part of a controlling evil minority, e.g. the Jews, that are, that, are, that are orchestrating this horrible thing. And I don't know how to deal with that. It's very difficult. And, I, and that's what I want to ask. Uh, what, okay. If you uh, have any uh, thoughts uh, on that. Thank you. So there. So if you... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In a way, it follows on from that, because I want to ask about the connection between identity politics and criticism of Israel in particular. So not just anti-Semitism, although that's an important point, but criticism of Israel, because it seems to me when I've got into arguments inadvertently often with left-wing people about, uh, about Israel or about just, just talking about politics, you kind of stumble into an argument about Israel, you find out that being anti-Israel has become central to their identity, which is a really peculiar phenomenon because generally speaking, these are not people who have a Jewish background, these are not people who have a particular Middle Eastern or Arab background. But somehow, in their essence, they feel that in order to be left-wing, they have to be anti-Israel. It's part of their identity. Now, you could take the view, well, it's just a kind of cynical cover for anti-Semitism, and maybe that is true in some cases. But I think in many cases, they don't think of themselves as being anti-Semitic. They think of themselves as being humanistic and enlightened people. Uh, they, they would say, yes, well, of course, we criticise British foreign policy and American foreign policy too. But somehow, Israel is special to them, and they have to have a special responsibility to criticising it. So, so what's behind that? Okay, thank you. Uh, first of all, comment on what you said, Frank. Uh, the numerous clauses, the, the limit on the number of Jewish students already existed in Hungary at the end of the 19th century. My grandfather ex encountered it when he wanted to go to secondary school, never mind university. He got through because he was just brilliant, but nevertheless, this was 
an institutionalized part of anti-Semitism even in the relatively liberal Austro-Hungarian Empire. I'd like to comment mainly on the issue of Israel where I live. There are a lot of issues around anti-Israeli or anti-Zionist sentiments that are not only about extending traditional anti-Semitism, although that's definitely a very big part of it. One issue that we haven't addressed at all is that Israel is still seen by a lot of people, mainly on the left, as a colonial power, the result of colonialism. And a lot of the attacks on Israel and its very existence come from the point of view of it wasn't the business of the British and the French to reallocate the borders of the Middle East after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and they didn't have any right to create a Jewish state. And this is something that I see all the time in discussions on Facebook, face-to-face discussions, whatever it happens to be. Um, There's also a great deal of resentment coming from the Arab world itself because Israel is a tremendously successful state, certainly when compared to pretty well anywhere in the Arab world. And so basically there's lots of jealousy coming from Arab leaders, by the way, they also use hatred of Israel as a way of diverting attention from their own problems. And I I think that we need to look at the anti-Zionism issue as being a little bit different from traditional anti-Semitism. Okay, thank you very much. Agnieszka Koek, Passion for Freedom Festival. I have few comments and um, agreements or disagreements. I'm aware, I'm Polish, and I'm aware that um, the law... There might be malicious intentions, but also awkwardness, because they are fighting their own war with the German propaganda, calling the Polish concentration camps, where it wasn't the no Poles establishing. Can I just continue? That's yes, that's one of the things as well. I've been learning Hebrew for the last three years. I started learning after I survived the terror attack in Copenhagen. And I'm learning from Israelis how to deal with terror and how to deal with the situation they are in, that this existence with this level of threat and complexity and how they're being portrayed on the outside, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to live this kind of existence. I agree on the fact that we have to call out anti-Semitism on left and right. This is a really good point. And all of us, this is a job of each one of us as individual human beings because we encounter these situations here and there where we choose or don't choose to open our mouth and say what is right. And also I wanted to say that we shouldn't be so naive that the left is so clean of anti-Semitism because in Poland the Jews were expelled by the communists in 68. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Okay, I'll be as quickly as possible. Uh, Deborah, you mentioned that somebody had said to you that Israel was born in sin. Mm-hmm. Now, sin, of course, is a theological, religious concept, and it reminded me of a, a, a meeting I went to in London about race in the American criminal justice system that then seamlessly turned into a boycott Israel meeting in which everybody was cheering from the river to the sea, which felt like a crusade. And I use the word. So there did seem to be a heavily sort of Christian theological component to the sort of left anti-Semitism. And yet, of course, in America, there does seem to have been the Christian right is so passionately Zionist. And I wonder whether you could talk a bit about how you see Christianity, the sort of contingency of the way Christianity is sort of Mm -hmm. being spoken of and emerged in these discourses, and whether that's part of why it becomes seen as a domestic political issue in America, not a foreign issue. Just wanted to change the direction slightly to ask, to what extent should modern liberal societies tolerate genital mutilation of children, be they Muslim girls or Jewish boys? Bloody hell. Every Every time... 
that debate comes on, or I've been involved in it in terms of the radio, it, it, I've had more issues on that issue. So do answer it, but don't take long, and then we can do it. We can discuss it in the bar later. Right, yeah, yes, sir. And um, then I'll come back to you. I was interested in just uh, asking you both around the structural um, side of uh, anti-Semitism. We'll also pick up on a couple of the points that were raised um, at the front. Uh, I, before this uh, session, I checked the odds of a Labour Corbyn government in about five or six weeks' time, uh, which is sort of between um, uh, three to one and six to one. Uh, so there's a reasonable likelihood that there's going to be a Corbyn, um, or possibility that there'll be a Corbyn Labour government. Um, and we've been discussing and you've been highlighting the anti-Semitism that exists within, really, that section of uh, 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 the Labour Party. So two questions. The first one is, is that if I'm speaking, I've never voted uh, for the Labour Party, but I'm speak if I'm speaking to somebody in the uh, election campaign and they're saying I'm going to vote um, uh, uh, for the Labour Party, I know this uh, anti-Semitism thing is a bit of a problem, uh, but not that big a problem. I'm interested in their nationalisation of the railways, blah de blah de blah blah How big a problem is it, would you say, when you're having those conversations saying... I can't believe you're going to vote for bloody Jeremy Corbyn and what he represents and some of his pals that are going to be in government. The second one is we're sitting here, hopefully in five years' time, um, meeting and discussing, and there has been uh, a Labour government. Um, what does that mean? What would that, you know, I'm asking you to speculate um, uh, for structural anti-Semitism led by, um, uh, or, uh, uh, by a Labour government. You literally can only pick up one or two mm -hmm. of the points and just give us a thought on okay. either. Um, first of all, as someone asked about when you come to uh, Labour Party or left groups and you say this is anti-Semitic, they say, well, no, it can't be anti-Semitic or you can't be a victim. It's uh, something Frank said earlier, you know, that the, the Jewish scene, the, the, the left, for many people in the progressive left, their view of the Jew is seen through, is refracted through a prism with class, their privilege, ethnicity, they're white. Ipso facto, they have power, and then they can't be victims. And then you had another overlay of that, which I call the Miss Piggy complex. You know, the moi, me, I couldn't possibly be an anti-Semite. My mother was at Cable Street, you know, um, which I don't have to define for this group or identify for this group. So if you can't be a victim and I can't be a perpetrator, there must be a nefarious, malicious reason for which you're bringing this false charge. I think it's Jonathan Friedland who pointed out in The Guardian uh, oh, well, a couple of years ago that for people in, the in terms of the Labour Party and m many people, not all, on the progressive left, is that when Jews come with a claim of anti-Semitism, when any minority group comes with a claim of discrimination, it's accepted as valid. The, the default position is it's valid. Maybe afterwards you'll discover that the person was not making a valid claim. With Jews, the default position is you, you have another ulterior motive. Yeah. And the logic of that is that you have to fight. I, I mean, I think my big criticism of British Jews is they're very quiet, and I, and I, I kind of wish they would, you know, sort of raise their voice a little bit and became a little bit more like Cable Street kind of Jews rather than 21st century ones. I just want to pick up on this one point that I feel very strongly about, the calling of male circumcision as genital mutilation. I think that is very much a zeitgeist view. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I think it is very interesting that, you know, for example, in many Scandinavian countries, they're banning kosher food and halal food uh, on the ground that it's uh, destroying animals and it's very, you know, very bad for the environment and it's murders. 
It's almost like a kind of old blood libel being recast into a, a 21st century progressive form. I do think that you know, sort of Jews, you know, sort of have fought for their existence as a people by taking male circumcision seriously. I think when you look at the debates that went on in Greece, you know, sort of two, two and a half thousand years ago, when the Greeks were saying that it was barbaric to circumcise people and, and, and real educated people don't circumcise them. So you had a revolution occurring uh, in, in, what is, in what is now Israel. And I, I just think that we have to ask the question, why do we want to basically uh, use the metaphor of genital mutilation mm -hmm. to male circumcision? And I, I think that when you kind of explore and look at it a little bit more deeply, what you're basically saying is you cannot be Jewish. That's right. Because being circumcised as a man is as integral to being Jewish as anything else. So basically you're saying, we love you Jewish people as long as you don't circumcise yourself. But then there are no Jews. And similarly in Europe, the far right and the far left, and everybody loves Jewish people as long as they're bars of soap, you know, after a concentration camp destruction. Jews are really good when they, when they kind of died in concentration camp. But the minute they open their mouths and they do something and they're living human being Jews, then a different standard applies to them. And just one very quick postscript to that. It's not, uh, science shows that a woman who has gone through genital mutilation or, or uh, which some Muslims practice, and certainly not all, uh, has very limited ability to enjoy sex. And I can tell you for a fact that circumcised well. men don't have. <laughs> I can, I'll drink to that. <laughs> We won't test it out, but we can have it. <laughs> Thank you. A right, a gentleman's got the, got the uh, microphone. There's a lady there. I, I pose this question as a, as a Jewish Brexit supporter. Um, and I have, I have a dilemma. His identity politics gone mad, everyone. I, <laughs> and with the, within the context of anti-Semitism, I have a dilemma with the in, in, uh, upcoming election. My heart agrees with Nigel Farage's criticism of Boris's deal. However, my head is posing a far more existential concern, which is what is the, probably more important to keep a Marxist anti-Semite out of number 10. So do I vote with my heart or with my head? I'd welcome the panel's guidance. OK. That's one for drinks, I think. Right, um, yes. Yeah, so the lady there, that, I've now discovered there's a gentleman here that I was missing... We'll get you in a minute. Right, OK, you carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to ask a very basic, simple question I don't understand. I cannot understand when we talk about historical specificity, we're talking about dealing with the moment and understanding now. How could, and I'm talking about Britain in this particular instance, I'm afraid, how could a left in Britain that is entirely imbued for the last 20-plus years with the whole Second World War and the Holocaust be in a situation where it's also anti-Semitic. I, I just... It's incomprehensible to me. I don't understand enough, therefore, about what's going on. Is it Jeremy Corbyn's 1%? Do people think that is where Jewish people are? And that, that, that sounds too simplistic. Just on that, actually, and, and something to reflect on, a lot of young people I know, this is, ignorance is obviously not an excuse, but a lot of young people I know almost don't even know what the anti-Semitic tropes are. But, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the kind of, if you think about kind of traditional left at the moment, it's kind of fairly conspiratorial about 
you know, big money men sitting around kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, ripping us off the 1% and so on. And obviously, if you're familiar with a lot of this, you recognise anti-Semitism fairly quickly, but they actually don't. But a lot of it is the nature of political discourse is, is so conspiratorially shallow anyway with some of these kind of characters. They're not, it's not in-depth analysis. I think it gets picked up. But anyway, see what the others think. Right, whoever, the people at the back, yes. Um, so, Claire, you said earlier that um, you didn't feel you were brave to challenge those six formers on anti-Semitism. Last year, we had a media power lecturer tell a full lecture theatre that the global media is owned by conglomerates, which was accompanied with a lovely cartoon of Jews around a table. Obviously, the power relationship there is different, but our university is in a push at the moment to decolonise the curriculum. But they refuse to acknowledge Jewish as an ethnic identity. So, yeah, how do I even try and make them literate in that? Okay, but, yeah, no, great. This follows on from that. Um, I'd like to focus more on the institutional acceptance or indifference to anti-Semitism. Because, I'll give me an example, I work in a university and for about four years I've been trying to get the um, various groups in the, in the university to actually do something about anti-Semitism and they have not moved. And those of you who know, it's slightly ironically, the only way we could deal with it is have a UCU meeting and invite David Hirsch to talk about left-wing anti-Semitism, to which hardly anybody came. And I think there's a real institutional inertia. And you know, it's easy to sit here and talk about left and right-wing issues, but everybody can go back to their own institutions and actually try and make some effort to get them to discuss anti-Semitism in its current form. OK, thank you. Uh, yes, sir. Hi, um, I have a question. I'm from Germany, and just a few weeks ago, we had this terrible attack on uh, a synagogue in Halle in Eastern Germany. And it was just by accident that um, the terrorists uh, didn't manage... Um, uh, didn't kill about 60 people. He, um, uh, he failed pool. to open the door. And um, then um, they found out that he was um, uh, part of the gaming scene in Eastern Germany. And the um, Minister of um, Internal Affairs in Germany said, oh, we have to do something about these gamers. They seem to be a problem. So why is that <laughs> blindness on the obviously rising anti-Semitism in Germany? especially in Germany. I don't understand. Okay, thank you. So many fantastic questions here, by the way, that I do, all of them, I keep thinking, oh, on page 83, <laughs> um, right, they are, take gen- you with me. they are genuinely answered in here, but also, in all seriousness, I'm really glad we've got these questions, but we should talk to each other about them as well, over the course of the, it's kind of a real sense of solidarity. I think, what would you do? How have you answered this? So look out for each other, the drinks and, and, and over the weekend. And let's keep in touch, because I think this is what we need to do. But anyway, yes. Along with all the other factors that have been discussed, might there also be a cynical, rationalised numbers game being going, on, going on? If, for instance, people, if there were three million Jewish voters in this country, for instance, might the Labour Party, for instance, be more aware of anti-Semitism? And something I find quite striking is that Jews are not all ethnically the same but it's still thought of that way. Okay, thank you. But I have a point, just before that, someone mentioned about the religiosity, and I think that was really interesting, because 
it does the the new the left now remind me a lot of the kind of medieval Christianity. You know, if you converted to Christianity, you became a good Jew. And now if you say you hate Israel, you become a good Jew. And there's this really strong, it's almost like a colonial obsession. I find the way Europeans are obsessed by Israel it is actually very colonial, even though they're often quite anti-colonial in, in all they believe they are. But I just wanted to say I work in the charity sector and, and for, for you know when I started I very much kept the fact that I am Jewish. Um, hidden because I just knew even though that they all think of themselves as very woke and very left-wing I knew and even though that many of them wouldn't recognize it if I said I was Jewish they would have some sort of negative feeling and I think there are some people maybe there's some people in this room deep down if you say the word Jew something negative comes into your mind and we have this racism across all races I appreciate um, but I knew that was there and you see as uh, now you know with the whole Corbyn Thing, and I see my sector sort of, you know, they tweet about racism, they tweet about Israel, of course, um, and, 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 then, and then they don't talk about the anti-Semitism and that they, they feel proud about showing off about Corbyn and they, they, that they support him. And I just think there's this real blind spot and it does actually remind me, I think the left is in fact like the new, the new medieval Christianity of old that we all think we hate and, and we all, you know, this, certainly our sector is meant to despise. Okay, thank you. Right, okay, Deborah, okay. get your final um, thought. I think that, uh, you know, what would happen if you said you were Jewish, there would be a skepticism, and then if you follow that up, but I don't, dis I don't agree with Israel, they would accept you. In other words, the, uh, the uh, cost of entry into some of these left, even if, uh, on the environment, on uh, violence to women, issues that have nothing to do with the p political Middle East or anything else, uh, the cost of acceptance for, for Jews, and I know on American university campuses as well on, in, in Britain, but certainly in America, that uh, many Jewish students f finding this, that in order to take part in issues that have nothing to do with Israel or Jewish identity, religious identity, the, the bona fides have to be that I don't agree with, with Israel. How there are Jews who do that, you know, you can be black and be a racist and you can be Jewish and be an anti-Semite. Uh, there's no question um, about it. And the institutional acceptance of anti-Semitism um, I think is only going to get worse. Uh, there's a real, uh, this is there's the real reluctance to take it seriously. Um, and in a way, you know, it's a legacy of the U.S. Certainly the Zionism is racism is the legacy of the USSR. The USSR may be gone and unlamented by most people, but that's a legacy that's, that still stays with us. And I think that that's where much of this comes from. Okay, thanks, Frank. Yeah, I, I, I do think that people in this room, especially the students, have got to open their mouth and, and not worry about being not as popular as you once were. And I just think it's very important to take on the fight as a creative dimension. I, have, I know people that have fought anti-Semitism even when they were very young and they really felt so much stronger and so much better just, just because for the first time they could be really themselves and they could actually turn things around because by standing up, what you're able to do is to challenge people's views in a very personal, immediate kind of a way. And, and I, I wouldn't just give up on the fight. I wouldn't just uh, imagine that, you know, that, not, that there is no way you can change people's opinion. I, one thing we haven't discussed, and there's a question raised about how could you be anti-Semitic and then you know, cry about the Holocaust? I think that that's a very important question. It's something I've been arguing about for the last 15, 20 years, which is that increasingly in Europe, the Holocaust has become totally disnified. It's been turned into this kind of unique event, you know, not unique event in, in the way it really was, 
but as like the one thing <coughs> that we memorialized. And as it became memorialized, then everybody had their Holocaust, so you had this proliferation of Holocausts occurring all, uh, all the time. And one of the things that occurred is that you know, he had this kind of shoving down the throats of people, the idea that it's important to remember the Holocaust without any explanations. And I remember being in a debate in Berlin about 10 years ago, and I argued if you keep on doing this, you're going to have an increase in the number of people that are going to be indifferent to the Holocaust, and then be going to be denying the, its very existence. And if you look at the statistics of the, sec, uh, of the percentage of European population in Western Europe that do not believe that the Holocaust has occurred, it's been on the increase, and it's been, it's been going up and up and up and up. And I think uh, th that was one of the tragic developments in the way that the way that Holocaust was used inappropriately, rather than teaching people exactly you know, the context and, and the way in which all these developments occurred. And I think that uh, what's really important now is to, that we have to go, we're going to have to start refighting the battle around the Holocaust and, and give it a narrative that is much more based upon the, uh, the, the challenges of our time and, and confront people with the fact that you know, we don't want you to you know, kind of go on and go on about the Holocaust and about the poor Jews that died. We, we, want, we want your uh, concern about the existing Jews that are living and are facing anti-Semitism. That's the real challenge for us. Okay, can we thank our speakers? <laughs> one of the questions I didn't ask, just to, to finish, one of the questions I didn't ask was, you know, obviously, you know, being sort of shunned in a student union or kind of kicked out of polite society because of your attitude to Israel isn't quite the same as, you know, the gas ovens. And, and so it can seem like anti-Semitism, you know, are we being trivial? And, and Deborah talks about this. It always it. begins with words. Yeah, no, yeah. But, but, but Deborah uh, makes this point in the book. But I was just going to say that, but, uh, but it's also the case that although it's very unpleasant, the rise of anti-Semitism, particularly in terms of Labour Party and politics and things, the truth of the matter is, it's also the case that we're not facing the gas ovens. And so I think we have an obligation to actually say that is anti-Semitic, or, you know, I, you know what I mean, to talk about it, even if, even if it's not very nice to be kicked out of polite society or to be treated badly. But I think, to a certain extent, we've got a bit of wiggle room. That's the point I'm making, mm -hmm. which is that we might get kicked out of the student union, but it's not quite the same. And, and, but it does require some courage, because I know it can be very unpleasant, because they basically call you... I mean, the irony is they call you far-right, alt-right, apologists for colonialism, apologists for the murder of Palestinians and so on. So that's all that. But anyway, the point of this festival, I think, is in some ways to encourage a sense of solidarity amongst people to consider these things and talk about them and discuss them more freely. So I think that that was a valuable contribution tonight. But I think as, a, as a, an exemplar of what the festival is, this was the panel or the discussion... And it's due to Deborah and Frank, so can we thank them? And buy the bloody book! You can find out more about the Battle of Ideas Festival by heading to our website, battleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to our newsletter by following the link below this recording.